All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our second panel of the day here at TBRCon 2021. Again, I'm your host, David Walters. For this panel, we're going to be uh, chatting about sensory detail and science fiction and fantasy. Before we get into the discussion, I'm going to let my panelists introduce themselves. So we're going to start with Mike. Hi, I'm Mike Chen. I write science fiction with a lot of feelings and characters and a lot less violence than other uh, people who can do much better than me. Uh, and there's world building in character driven science fiction. So um, my latest book is called We Could Be Heroes, which came out yesterday. Fantastic. Scott. Hey, I'm Scott Drakeford. Uh, I write fantasy fiction. Uh, that's all I've written for now, at least. And I have the Age of Ire trilogy coming out sometime in the next 12 months ish. I'll just stick with that. Gareth? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Gareth Powell. I write uh, space opera. Uh, my latest trilogy was The Embers of War, which was out from Titan Books. Megan? Then I have two secret projects. Hey, Megan, let's try that again. We couldn't hear you. <laughs> oh, can you not hear me? <laughs> can you hear me okay now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I am still Megan. Uh, <laughs> I still write science fiction. Uh, uh, latest trilogy that's after it is finished uh, here with Catalyst Gate, and I have a few projects. We'll go to Marina. We'll see if we can come back to Megan here in a second. Okay. Megan, you're. you're voice was breaking in and out. I can introduce you. No. <laughs> I'm Marina Lostetter. I write both science fiction and fantasy. Uh, my latest completed trilogy was the Numenon trilogy, which is space opera. This year, I have two books coming out. Uh, one is The Helm of Midnight, which is dark fantasy. And then I have a thriller space opera called Activation Degradation coming out in the fall. Fantastic. Brian? Yeah, so my name is Ryan Van Loan. Uh, I have a trilogy out with Tor Books. The first book dropped uh, this past summer. It's called The Sin and the Steel. It's about a Sherlockian teenager and her partner in crime solving, who's also a suspiciously good swordsman, who take on empires and the undead and mages and gods to uh, solve a mystery that uh, this, the most powerful trading companies in the world have failed to solve. And the uh, sequel drops this summer, and the final book I finished uh, back in September. So it is all there and coming your way. Fantastic. Well, thank you, uh, first off, for, for all being here. I uh, really appreciate y'all taking the time to come join our panel. Um, so kind of uh, what I first want to get into, uh, you know, be, being a, a pretty avid reader myself, um, you know, I'm – I, I, I like things over-described. I, I know a lot of people don't, uh, but I, I almost enjoy over-description. I like to know when I enter a room what everything looks like. Is the floor dirty? Is there something on a shelf? You know, kind of thing. I, it kind of comes back when I played a lot of role-playing games growing up. But, you know, what, what types of details do you think have to be in a work of science fiction or fantasy or, you know, fiction period uh, to really capture a reader's imagination and kind of drop them into the setting. Uh, and Gareth, I want to start with you. Oh, okay. Um, I think if you're using an unusual environment, which in sci-fi that's usually the case, you need enough just to ground the reader so they can actually imagine the scene. Um, there's, there's nothing worse than sort of reading a conversation between two characters and not being able to picture where they are or exactly what's going on. Or, you know, you've had some odd details but they don't quite make sense so i like to put just enough in that the reader can kind of ground themselves and get a good um idea of what's happening behind the characters as they're talking so i wouldn't for instance describe a room in, in exhaustive detail but i would just put in two or three telling details um and a couple of sensory impressions such as how the room smelled and whether it was warm or cold or something like that, just to kind of enough for the the reader's imagination to build the rest. Yeah, true. Who wants to take that one on? Oh, 
I like to, I don't over describe very naturally. So it's definitely, a, I go back in and I kind of like layer in new details uh, after the fact. But the things I try to focus on are things that are also like mood details. So not only is, what are you sensing, but why are you sensing it? Like if you're describing a dirty floor, is it a creepy dirty floor or is it a like really old, dusty, disgusting floor? Like how the person feels about the individual detail is just as important to me as what the detail is because you're trying to create an overall mood and an atmosphere. So I try to pick the details that are going to create whatever emotion I'm trying to pick out as well as the grounding part, which is obviously like the fundamental important part of the details, making sure that you have an environment for your characters to inhabit. I, I would say that um, I, I'm very much along those lines in terms of quantity. I actually reverse engineer what I do. Um, so I will write like the dialogue and like the beat like the character beat first. And then I will look at like the sensory environment around there to see like what is actually relevant to that. And then I will, I kind of have a spreadsheet of details and then I will pick and choose about like what fits in there best to really accentuate the moment for both the characters and the action. So I, I, I think I'm bad at world building compared to other people. I would really have to like work it backwards into, into my stuff. Hmm. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. It's always a battle. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I approach it similarly to to how you all are describing it. Although the way I think about it is just um, from the character's point of view. So you know, I, I'm trying to use that world building uh, to to show us more about the character. What are they noticing? What key details are are important to them? Uh, but then, like Gareth said at the at the top, it, it is also making sure that I'm also letting the reader know, especially in a fantasy setting, very early on. You know, what what era level of technology are we looking about here? Um, what's the culture like? What's the architecture like? Uh, what are you know? If I could get values in there, even better. But all through the eyes of the character. I kind of always go back to that. On that, I actually have a question for the rest of you all, like on that topic, if I'm allowed to do questions instead of yeah. uh, saying stuff. I'm curious as to, <laughs> you know, it, when you're doing that kind of uh, uh, thing, right? Like doing it from a, a character's perspective. So Ryan's talked about it, Marina, uh, the, a few others. But do you guys use, fil you know, filter uh, terms? Like, do you you describe it as it as the you know x person saw this x person saw that do you guys stay away from that do you use that situationally i'm interested in how tactically you guys insert those sensory details uh and maybe even how you how you change that up depending on the scene yeah megan you go Except we can't hear you. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> I, can, I can go first, I guess, while, yeah. while you're figuring out the, the audio. Uh, and, and I ask this, right, because um, I, I've been thinking about this as, I, as I'm writing my own books. Uh, and I've come across a whole lot of people that are like, ah, oh, cut out all filter. Uh, all filter words, all all filter descriptions. You know, you don't need it. Just just state it, and then you can get into maybe how your characters feel about it or whatever. But I've actually found that uh, in certain instances, it can get me closer to my uh, my character, my my POV character, uh, if I'm inserting filtered uh, uh, observations here and there. Um, and I. As I hope I'm not alone in this, but as I'm doing it, I'm like, shit, am I doing the right thing? Like, am I just a complete noob here? So I'm legitimately interested in how you guys do this. So you're talking about like versus what the what the character sees versus what they like really notice, really is the way that I would describe the difference between what I just talked about. Because like you go into a room and you like see stuff, but then there's going to be the thing that you focus on. Um, so I think you kind of need to use filter words in that sense to be like, oh, and then. They saw the X that was on the table, and it was the thing that blah blah blah. You know, so I don't think that's necessarily like. I think it's a tool, right? Like any other aspect of writing, that you, as long as you're employing your tools like consciously, then there's no bad tools. I've had notes back from editors where I've described something that the character has has been in a situation. They hear like a rushing noise, and they say, "Oh, it's like pines 
like the wind in pine trees. And the editor said, this person grew up in a spaceship. They've never seen a pine tree. <laughs> so you have to go back and, and kind of say, there was a rushing like a faulty air conditioning unit or something, just to bring it into their kind of context. Um, otherwise, it's the author talking, not the character. I do this trick where, um, because my, my stuff is very, very close to point of view. Um, and I almost like when I know I have to build out a scene like visually or sensory around the character, I will picture myself in their shoes and almost like playing a first person video game. Like, like think about looking, moving the camera around and noticing the details there. Um, and then I'll just jot down some bullet point notes from there and then try to weave that in there. But also think about specifically, if I am doing this as a first person view from, from a video game, what do I pick up first? Um, and because I play a lot of video games, uh, it's it's a good uh, world building exercise um, to, to just try to take that experience, but then put it into the character. Hmm. Megan, can we hear you now? I have no idea. I've yep. switched yes. my settings around. Yeah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I'm just sitting here kind of holding my breath, hoping it would work. So now I can let out that breath I didn't know I was holding. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I like Marina uh, said, I, I tend to use filter words as a tool um, if I need to use them at all. But generally, I personally try to avoid them. Um, I apologize if I'm restating something because I missed part of that while I was muttering around in my settings trying to figure things out. But uh, <laughs> I, I always tend to fall back on to um, when I'm really deep in a character's view, I rely on the, the concept of what we notice first is usually what we value most. Um, so I think about like, what is important to this character? You know, what are they going to notice in a situation? Are they more of an engineering type? Are they going to notice how something is made? Or are they more of a um, sort of artsy type? Are they going to notice like the aesthetic of something before they notice the materials and, and the construction, that kind of thing? I think too, it depends on the scene, like what, where the focus needs to be. If the focus is really on a character interaction and less on the scenery, then like, you know, I'm just going to have a, a quick, this is the type of setting they're in and then jump right into that uh, interaction and, and ignore it. But if I'm, if like, I'm trying to set something up where there's, you know, a reveal that's going to happen later, that's important in that area, you know, I'm going to make sure that there's some careful description layered in there and, and maybe even use some filter words, but probably bury it so that it's not the first thing that's seen, but maybe it's the third or fourth. Um, but it's enough, hopefully, like I always try to color it a little bit. Um, Almost like if it's like a black and white scene, I just try to give a little tint of color to that one thing so that the reader later on is going to realize what happened and be like, aha. And, um, you know, they'll, I think hopefully, you know, they kind of feel like, oh, I was fooled, but at the same time, oh, I kind of got it. And if you're reading really carefully, maybe you did get it. I think those types of scenes are always fun to write. But, um, but yeah, so really just for me is more like, what am I trying to do in that particular space? I say something subtle that's not like a focal point. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's just kind of there you know, sitting in, sitting in the blurry spot in the corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I can play off of what Ryan said real quick. I think I, I think I got this from Mary Robinette Qual. I'm not quite sure, but I remember hearing quite a while ago that readers tend to remember the first thing in a paragraph and the last thing in the paragraph better than the rest of the paragraph. Um, and I do a lot of twisty things and sleight of hand with my, with my prose and my plotting. So I, I'm very careful to put important details where I'm like, you're, you're going to want to remember this and I'm going to pull on it later, either in the beginning or the end of a paragraph. Just a neat little trick. Be like, this is important. Please pay attention to it subconsciously. Hmm. Anybody else? Oh, go ahead. I would say, and also along the lines of like trickery things, like the rule of three tends to be a good thing. Like if you mention something once, it may or may not stick in your brain. If you mention it twice, they go, oh, wait, I think I heard of that before. And once you do it a third time, they're like, ah, oh, that's important. So if there's things that you really want the reader to remember, you have to hit it at least three times is more or less the conventional thinking along those in that way. <laughs> hmm. uh, so we got a question from uh, the, the people tuning in. Do you follow any rules when introducing a scene? I know a lot of authors follow the two sentences rule and do you follow find that useful or limiting? I think, it really I think it's, depends. oh, no, go ahead, Mike. Okay. I, I think it's really just depending on what the scene needs. And, and I'm pretty sure everyone will agree with that. It's because uh, it depends on like the, the tension of the moment, the action that's going on before and after into it. 
Um, and if you have the space to to breathe into like a, a more introductory type of thing, or if it's like you're in a high stakes, you know, high action or high character moment. Um, so I think everything's always a little bit different. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I don't follow any rules, but I think when you're first starting off, if you, uh, you know, if you're finding that your uh, your scenes are, are one note, um, you know, I think it might be useful to, to do something like that. What I did like to do uh, earlier in my my writing process and, and career was, um, and I got this from uh, um, Nalo Hopkinson, uh, to go back through and highlight, like, I would just do it for the first chapter, but highlight in different colors, like print it out and highlight in different colors, like which senses was, were, were I using, was I using to describe things? And so then that would tell me like, if it's all visual, if there's no audio, is there anything tactile or, you know, other sensory details? So I think in that regard, it's, it's useful, but I, I don't use that anymore. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, it's more organic at this point for me. Anybody else? I just try to sort of include at least three different senses in each page. So um, there's, you know, sight, smell. So it's always mostly sight about what the characters are seeing and what's happening, but also just um, hearing and taste and, you know, just try and mix a couple more in there just to kind of be slightly more evocative and of uh, what's happening. Yeah, true. Um, kind of to go along with that, and Christina asked another question that, that kind of goes hand in hand with it. Is there is there one type of sense that's easier or harder for you to write? I can jump on that first. I mean, absolutely. For me, I was a professional perfumer for many years, <laughs> so smell comes quite easily to me. That's uh, you'll, you'll find a lot of interesting scents in my book if you're looking closely. <laughs> so that kind of thing, just. First thing I think of, I usually have to rearrange scenes because I'll be like, oh no, people notice sight first, not smells, Megan, please, you know, <laughs> put that in order. <laughs> That's actually uh, really interesting and, and something I was talking to some writer friends about recently is uh, about how memory works, right? And uh, and I think probably how memory works uh, changes our, our perception and our mode of perception. My memory doesn't work all that well visually, right? Like uh, uh, when I'm imagining something visually or remembering something visually, it, it's almost like remembering a shadow or or something like that. But I can I can remember smells really well. I can remember emotions really well because I'm a, an emotional person uh, and sounds. So I think I I lean heavily toward those things that I I I perceive right and the visual, even though I know in my mind it's important that's what I have to go back afterward and in, in all my edits, like, wow, I really don't describe anything visually <laughs> and, and have to make sure I hit that every now and then just so I'm not, you know, leaving visual people out. Yeah, I have to do that too. I'm very much a movement focused person. So like, what is, what, what are people doing? How are they standing? How are they? So I um, often when I give my first draft to my husband, he's like, I don't know what anybody looks like. And I'm like, just imagine. And he's like, but that's your job. So <laughs> <laughs> so that is one of the things that I also have to put back in is I'm like, I don't know, they're just people. They're, you know, they're tall, they're short, I don't know. <laughs> what they're doing is what's important. And so it's it's good to have a first reader for me that looks for different things than I naturally put in first. Uh, because that does help me go back and realize that I'm trying to get a bunch of different readers whose brains all might work very differently than mine. And to communicate my story to them, I need to make sure that I'm including things that I don't naturally want to or you know need to include or feel you know is a priority to to include um so yeah movement for me uh then visually is easier for me to remember to go back and do um and then i think like texture actually gets left out a lot like it's another thing i have to go back through and think about what people unless somebody is like directly touching something that's new or different it's tactile things are difficult for me to remember to put in um and then smells i can kind of drop in on a draft room, just like, you know, going through a room and being like, ah, oh, different rooms smell differently. So what's that scent? But yeah, definitely probably tactile is the thing that I forget the most often if there's a sense I forget. So. Can I ask a spin-off question on that? Does anyone care? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so Marina, you were saying that like you have your husband as a, a first reader. Have you found, and this goes for all of you, have you found that over the years, like 
you're you become naturally better at identifying like what you miss initially and what like and what doesn't come naturally to you and like do you like i find like i have to force myself to like go back and add xyz because i know my brain just doesn't go there but have any of you found any techniques to make that more part of your natural process i think I mean, just the reader aspect like knowing what he's going to be thinking about that i'm not naturally thinking about has helped me there yeah i mean i think i've picked up on ticks that i have that like i either do too much of or i don't do enough of I'm trying to think if I have any world building ones. I mean, the closest one is that if they're not a, a, a character with dialogue, I tend to, um, or even if they do have dialogue, if they're just in that one scene, I'm really bad at giving them a name. And so it'll be like the the man did this, or you know, the the merchant did this, or the woman did that. And um, so I've I've trained myself kind of to in the moment when I'm writing the scene to be like, okay, I'm gonna give them a name or at least a better descriptor so that like, they're not this like faceless person. Um, and I'm, you know, 50, 50 successful on that. And normally when I go back through and I'm doing my second pass, I'll, I'll pick it up and be like, all right, let's call them something. And then I'll, you know, not add it to my my encyclopedia like all good writers should. And then uh, eventually my editor will, will force me to do that. I was going to say, then you have to remember them. <laughs> it is painful. It is painful. <laughs> Gareth, did you have anything to add? Um, I just have a couple of like small phrases I try and keep in mind, like um, uh, to be specific. So if I'm if I'm just saying he ran across the floor, then I go, hang on, I need to be more specific. He ran across the dusty flagstone floor and just just put in, you know, if he picks up a, a vase, he picked up a, a yellow vase. I'm, I'm just that slightly more specific just to help people imagine it and make it a little bit less of a kind of generic background. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever read a book that's just been so generic <laughs> and, and, you know, not had some kind of descriptor like, you know, dusty or moldy or something you know i i feel like mo most authors do a pretty good job of of at least keeping it somewhat descriptive so where you can you know if you're familiar with what those terms mean then you can be like okay I, I can visualize that you know but you know, there are some authors that take it way beyond and you know like i said you can see every speck of dust on the floor rather than just knowing it's dusty and there's a footprint you know so um so i, I i'm curious i asked this in a, a different panel uh in regard to world building, but is food a necessity uh, when you're talking about sensory? Like, is is it necessary that your your characters eat or drink? Uh, I mean, not just something that we would recognize, but you know, is, is it? A, I mean, clearly we have to eat or drink to survive. So, would your characters need to? Um, and do you feel that like that helps, or you know, sometimes can it hinder if you don't have enough of it in your book? Anybody can I, I think uh, um, just from from reader feedback that I've gotten because I've had um, I've had a few characters who are foodies, and and people really like having that kind of quirk in there. Um, I personally am not, and so every time that I've written that, I've based it on what my wife tells me because she's like a huge foodie, and so like she's described like oh, and I'm cutting onions like this happens to me, and I'm like I'm stealing that. I'm gonna take that that from from her. Um, but I, I think it's just it does round out a character like their preferences because i mean even me being like i eat to live i really don't care you know except for tacos which i really like that's a character quirk um and, and so having that kind of detail about like what they notice or if they just you know specifically do not care um that's something that informs who their their character and it's um world building detail so especially in science fiction and fantasy where, you know, maybe burgers don't exist here or, you know, you need to know what kind of um, spices are available, what type of preparation they have and that kind of thing can all build your world, your technology level and that different kind of thing. Um, also, I used to think it wasn't that important until um, having a conversation or overhearing a conversation my agent was having with somebody else and they talked about how food is important to social things in different cultures. Um, it tends to be social, 
but in different ways. And there's lots of different um, taboos related with how you eat or don't eat. Um, and those can also be really good world building aspects to show. Um, so even those of us who are also not foodies, <laughs> um, like our lives revolve around food more than we think they do sometimes um, from just an interpersonal standpoint. Like the fact that coronavirus is going on and I haven't been able to go to a restaurant in a year is really weird to me because that used to be like the social thing we did is we went and we ate together, right? Um, so I used to think it wasn't important, but now I think it's much more yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a foodie, but I don't include a lot of food in my books. Um, and I think just because it's, it's probably down to this type of story you're telling and the scenes that you're picking out. Um, and so my characters will end up in taverns and, and things like that. And so, you know, I'll describe the drinks that they're having. Uh, and what those are. They don't eat a lot of food, but but when there is food in, in the scene, like I do make sure that, you know, it's serving multiple purposes. So like in the first book, um, there's, you know, there's a really funny scene uh, with uh, the main characters being held by pirates. And I kind of play some jokes off of them having to eat eel. And, uh, and I've got good feedback on that. But then like later on, I'll use it to show like a regional dish and you get a feel for the culture based upon that. Now, of course, tying back to, to our world. And so folks are making some connections there. But in that regard, I do. But I don't worry about it too much, you know, in the same way that I don't really worry about other bodily functions showing up on the page that's just me <laughs> i think the the act of eating food though as well can be very revealing for character and for the relationships between characters i mean my favorite example off the top of my head is probably in alien where they all sit down and they're all talking and laughing and two of them are grumbling about overtime and that all their kind of work things are put aside and they kind of come together as a little sort of family and that's the you know and then obviously things happen and they all get munched by an alien but it's um but that little scene i think um just kind of humanizes them all very much just before everything kicks off and it's the contrast between that very domestic little scene and what follows that i think makes what follows much more shocking megan scott anything to add yeah, well, I've all um, been in line pretty much with Marina and that I use I use food and as a world building tool to show, uh, you know, what what is available in the world, who has access to what, because there there really are a lot of social rules uh, around food um, and what's acceptable to eat and when, and um, it, you know what what a character likes and dislikes and why they do in that particular world, and um, to Gareth's point of um, that scene in Alien. Uh, that's one of my favorite scenes. And I, I really love a good found family moment where like they all finally come together around the table and, and share a meal. And I especially love it when there's disagreements. Like one one of them is really bad at cooking, but they're all trying to cook together. You know, that it can really illustrate those character dynamics and make them feel a little more real, a little more fully rounded. I gotcha. Um, so this one may be a little more geared towards science fiction writers, but you know, the knowledge you portray about space and ships in your novels, how much of it is actual research? How much is fantastic sounding BS? <laughs> you know, because the majority of your readers won't be able to tell the difference. So, you know, is it worth the super amount of research or do you just get kind of a, you know, I don't know, like a surface level amount of research to, to be able to add it into your novel? it depends question <laughs> like how you have important. to pick your battles <laughs> yeah, how, how much <laughs> this is the thing i'm going to research or this is the thing i'm going to hand wave because universe magic physics it, you, you just have to choose what is important to your story to really elucidate on yeah the only thing i would say is like beware the fanboys and lasers they're a laser expert so I even like changed a weapon system in my most recent thing that's coming out in September because I was like, I don't want to deal with the dudes being like, you can't see the lasers in space. And I'm like, but it's just, I'm trying to give you a visual because otherwise we're just dodging around each other at long distances and it's really boring. But there's always going to be those guys. So 
they're they're great because they're very into what you do, but also they're very picky. So then you gotta figure it. That's the battle I don't want to do. So I. <laughs> I, I just think. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. Um, so I go back to like when I was editing the final pass of my time travel novel. Um, my editor said, "Okay, let's sit down and think about all the questions that people will ask because this is a time travel novel that will take them out of um, take them out of the story." So, like in, in that case, it was like paradoxes and time travel limits and things like that. And what kind of fake science for me? Like I because i have an engineering background like i'm really into like the the fake science of like when i watch star trek i love their fake science and how it's like very plausible if you add in variable x um so that's kind of how i built it but i think there's just the idea of know who your readership is because certain groups of readers will care more and if they are going to care and if it's going to take them out of the story um then that's a problem so you have to be able to address that in at least um like I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and Stephen Moffat was very good at like inserting a single line in there to acknowledge that like he thought about this. He may not answer it, but he put it in there enough for it to like exist as like a plausible explanation. So like so you have to decide whether your your viewership or your readership is going to care to what level and then what type of questions they're going to ask. I always think of it as well the way um, in a modern literary novel a character goes out of his house and gets into his car to drive down to the store, he wouldn't pause to contemplate the inner workings of the combustion engine at great length and explain it to the reader. Um, so I try to do that with my characters when they get into the spaceships. They don't sit down and explain how they work because they know how they work. They drive them every day. But I just kind of put in enough kind of references that the reader can kind of fill in that, oh, this is a faster than light drive. This is a... Um, so I think if I stop to explain it, the it, it kind of takes you out of the character because the character takes this technology for granted. So their narration has to take this technology for granted. Yeah, because you don't want to kind of come back to the whole, you know, you don't want them to have to explain what they already know. <laughs> um, so this one uh, kind of touches a little bit on, uh, on one from earlier, but have you ever written a character that experiences sensorial detail in a particular way? And what did that mean for your writing or approach? Well, I've written some weird aliens and not aliens. <laughs> I know that's confusing. Um, so the difficult part there is always trying to show something from a relatable perspective for the reader um, while making it feel weird and distant. Um, so sometimes it just has to do with like distorting a sense from how you normally would perceive it. Meaning like looking at the way that even just the different animals on earth perceive things that humans don't, um, and then taking scientific descriptors from that and applying it to the way that your character works or the way that they see or feel or sense things, um, which also I'm sure that sounds very confusing in the moment. But <laughs> so basically, I try to look at other senses that other things, other creatures already have, and then try to apply that filtered through a human lens that lets the reader kind of connect to it. Absolutely. I, I wrote a trilogy about um, an uplifted monkey. Um, so he experienced everything through monkey senses, which are, are close enough to human that we can just about relate. But at the same time, he would be bothered by the way people smelled much more than we probably would. Um, and he would take, you know, if someone smiled at him, he'd think they were burying their teeth in challenge and attack them. So it, it was kind of trying to put my head into that very different space but was also familiar, but just different enough to uh, be interesting. I think. Yeah, I, I am. I'm actually working on something similar right now for my next fantasy series uh, that has um, uplifted gorillas in it, uh, but are um, you know sufficiently uh, advanced and evolved in their own society that you know they're kind of uh, uh, akin to. The Scottish Highlander clans mixed with um, the Japanese samurai, and so they have their own their own kind of touch points there. But then I filter it all through, as much as I can, through senses that would be more appropriate for you know how gorillas perceive the world. Um, which, like Gareth said, it's not a huge difference, but there are nuances there. Um, I actually think it's really interesting when I'm writing it. It kind of breaks things breaks things up a little bit and gives me new things to focus on. 
Yeah, I think I think maybe the least subtle sensorial uh, difference in terms of how I describe how people perceive the world is, uh, and I write fantasy primarily. Uh, so the people that possess a magical talent or ability versus those that don't, or those that possess, uh, you know, some sort of engineering or technological capability that others don't. That typically colors how my characters perceive the world and and the crutches they lean on more than I, I do with uh, other senses, I suppose. Like, I don't go around thinking like, oh, I, this person is very smell-based or whatever, you know? Like, I, I don't perceive that on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's like super fascinating to me to, to talk to people about, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, how people's memory works and things they perceive. But I don't, I don't think about that on a on a day to day basis. And so, it's really the more obvious things that make it into into my books. Mike, any thoughts? I haven't written any fantastical people like that, um, or characters like you know elevated versions of other um, of animals. But uh, so, I would say like when because my stuff is very close, tight point of view. It's really just getting in their head and then because like, you know, the foodie person is going to probably notice smells first. The analytical person will probably, you know, think more meticulously about what they're what they're in. So it's just about getting into their point of view. And you, you can establish a lot about character um, and the way that person thinks, um, which will then play, pay off later on in when you put them in an extreme situation just by how they react to it, the sensory in their environment. Um, just kind of a, a follow-up question with that. Do you, do any of you take those types of senses or maybe peculiarities about people that you know and put them into your books? So, you know, you talk about your foodies, you talk about you know, people who, who maybe, uh, about how things or sound, et cetera. Do you, do you add those in or is it all just, this, this was a, this was an odd thing I saw, you know, one day and, and I'm going to, jot that down and make sure I make a character out of it. Can anybody feel free to take on that? Yeah, actually, um, for my new space opera series and, and a little bit in the, the last the last one, Protectorate, um, I have friends who have magnets implanted in their fingertips. Um, it allows them to just sense electrical fields um, as like with sort of like a subtle vibration. And since I do a lot of um, synthetic beings, people, AIs, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I borrowed that from my friends um, that sort of enhanced the fact that not only are these people, you know, intelligences uh, based in code and that is sort of how they think and interact with the world and they, they think in, in logic sets and loops and things like that, but the way they actually feel in the world is completely different from the way people, normal people would feel. So I, I definitely stole that from my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? I don't think I have on accident. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel. I don't think I go around going like, "Ooh, I'm gonna put that in a thing," or "Ooh, I'm gonna put that in a thing." But I think it just kind of like filters in. Like you vaguely recall you experienced a thing once where somebody said something strange that you never would have thought about about a smell or something. Um, and then I put it in, but I'm another one of those people who doesn't tend to keep track of details very well. I don't make Bibles or anything like that. I just hope it all works. I gotcha. Yeah, because uh, you know, I was talking to Essa Hansen uh, about a month or so ago, and she works you know, with sound. And so a lot of her uh, descriptions are something completely, you know, different from what you know you would say something smells or sounds like and i thought i found that really interesting i don't know many people that that do that but yeah she uses sound for a lot of her descriptions and so you, you kind of read and you have to reread and you go what yeah that's that's interesting it's different you know um so I, I i was just curious if anybody else you know had something like that so they you know it's smelled something that you would usually use for like a feel sense or you know vice versa so um Another question from uh, people checking in. Uh, do you have a bag of tricks, so to speak, for your sensory details? For example, do you keep a list of scents or tastes and which detail is your favorite to include and why? 
Well, my I'll go back to my my bag of tricks of pretending I'm like in a first person video game of that character and being able to move the camera around and what do I pick up first? Um, I, I I think like that ability to to kind of like both personalize and depersonalize, you know, the point of view. Um, it, for me, it's the easiest way to like identify like these are the this is the visual in my head, and these are the things that jump out to me right away. Um, and I, I I'll say that um, I don't like including <laughs> food taste because I have like I just don't notice it that much in real life. Uh, so it, it was uh, like whenever I do, it's usually like just me getting reference from my wife <laughs> about that. Anybody else? Gareth? I don't know. I don't um, necessarily have a, a bag of tricks. There are uh, maybe a, a few sm smells or sensations that creep back into my work. Um, now and again, I've noticed the, the smell of pine trees does turn up a few times over the course of my books. Because um, so I kind of associate it with the light and airy space. So it's... Uh, um, that seems to be something. Also, the smell of fried onions as well. That's very evocative um, and turns up a lot. So a lot of time I have to kind of take the onions out and replace them with garlic or something just to set up variety. I mean, I think I have... So I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot. Although I'm sure I have a few that I keep going back to and just don't haven't realized or picked up yet. But when it comes to like visceral scenes, I probably do have a couple. Like, like not to be too morbid, but when you know when I'm describing like somebody who's been killed or has been dead for a while, like I do tend to go back to like you know that there and, and it's cliched, so I use it in slightly different terms. But basically, like that like sickly sweet smell of like something that's like dead and rotting, like that. I think you know most people are at least somewhat familiar with what that smells like. Maybe not in a visceral sense of like a human, but like you know as an animal that's been dead on the road for a while or trash that's been like left out in the sun uh, in the summer or something like that. Like those types of things, I, I tend to, um, I tend to focus on anything that I can describe really viscerally and try to pull the reader in more. And so that's like one area that just jumps to mind, but I don't have like a running list that I'm like, I'm referencing as I'm going. I would like to have a running list. I should do better at making lists. <laughs> I don't keep any sort of records, but I do occasionally. I find myself trying to describe something, and I'll use like the same. The same word will come back to me over and over again, and I obviously don't want to use the same word. So I'm very big on my thesaurus or just googling textures of specific things or something because, like, something soft. You're like a million things are soft. Is it like you know, soft like a marshmallow? Is it soft like a cat? Is it you know? Um, so I do very readily go online and Google specific things just to try to make sure that I'm not using the same terminology over and over again to describe one thing, because we do definitely have like a narrow, or at least I do a narrow window of like my immediate sensory details that I want to include. And then trying to branch out and be more specific in those senses can be more difficult to try to make my brain do all that stuff. So. I did actually, in a pre-COVID time, I did actually keep a list on my phone. And this was like when I was in my day job office, when I'd be walking from place to place, instead of, you know, just doom scrolling Twitter, like I tried to force myself to like pick up a sensory detail or like, you know, see, notice a tiny thing that might come into play later on. And then I had a running Google doc of it. And I would actually refer to it from back from time to time just to try to color in details. But now I'm in a house with a screaming six-year-old all the time. So I can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, that's that's a really good point, actually. I, uh, I, I've traveled quite often, you know, before COVID times. And yeah, I mean, I think that would help break up what, what Marina was talking about, kind of this narrow, like your repetitive environment that you're in. Um, even if it's just traveling with Within you know within a, a so many miles of your house going to a different city or something like that, but often I would travel you know um, out of out of the country, and and that would help kind of break break that rut I think in my head and made writing a lot easier. And I have noticed um, just feels like everything's a little grayer when I'm writing right now at the moment because it is kind of like that you know I've been staring at these four walls for a year now <laughs> and I really need to get out. Yeah. A tool I use to kind of break up not me because like I don't have like a list or a bag of tricks or anything like that, but I certainly have ticks where you know we all like, use the same description over and over again sometimes. 
And there's a thesaurus called One Look, um, like the number one in look. And it, it's an association thesaurus. So it doesn't give you like direct, you know, these are synonyms, but it gives you like, here are all words that are kind of in a cloud clustered around the concept of this word. And that, that's usually good to sort of shake the cobwebs loose and be like, oh yeah, that thing exists that I forgot about. All right, you hear that bloggers one look. Because yeah, <laughs> right my now. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read that of synonyms and reviews. <laughs> I swear I feel like I use phenomenal and fantastic way too much. Um, great, because it gives you like, do you want an adverb or a noun or you know, and it, and of course it gives you all sorts of things that you would just never think of as being associated. So wow. Yeah, I find right writing sort of space opera, I keep running out of words for big. I deleted like five instances of the word massive from a book recently. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Oh my gosh. Um, so a fellow author, Andrew Stewart asks, obviously there's limited space. How do you choose what sensory details to include and which ones to leave to the reader's imagination? visceral things anything that's more emotional is gonna be the better thing to go with i think it's just whatever the scene uh, necessitates um so like if if you're in like in a room that's like very humid and dense then like that's probably more important than like you know if it's very bright and you know, visually, like that's obscuring whatever the character is trying to see. So I think it's just like, what is the goal of the character in the scene? And then how can the sensory environment basically like either enhance or prevent them from doing that? Hi, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Andrea. <laughs> yeah, it's very much the sort of the telling detail that you want rather than the, you know, the, the extraneous detail. So, um, the, the detail that adds to the atmosphere and adds to the, the, the sort of either the sense of what's happening in the scene. Um, I'm just trying to give an example, but I remember in one of my short stories describing a waitress, and the only physical description I gave her was that she had a pen behind her ear and dried egg on her sleeve, and that kind of I, I, I thought that was enough to go on, and people seem to have pictured her from that because um, you, I don't like massively over describing characters i like people to be able to project their own um imaginations into into the vessel of the character so um, but you just need enough detail to kind of allow that to happen i think too it depends where in the story we're at i think earlier on i'm more inclined to give a little more detail but once once the reader is like in the world and sunk into the page then you know, i think you can get away with less because they're going to fill that in naturally because they're kind of in their own mindscape at that point but i also do think what, what gareth said is, is really good about as far as you know kind of the focus and where they're at like in that moment so you know if you have a character who uh who is in an emotional scene having an argument with somebody and, you know, their, their eyes are burning with, with unshed tears and they're, you know, breathing in sharply through their nose. Like those are opportunities where you can use those visceral smells or feels or details to enhance it. Whereas, you know, it's less important, you know, uh, what they're wearing or, 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 you know, what the color of the wallpaper is. So I know that's, that's like making it sound super basic, but that is just how I, how I try to approach it when I'm, when I'm in the middle of the scene. All right. So a uh, question from Tribal and Cloak, friend of the friend of the booktube channel. Uh, do you feel like you include too much or too little sensory type descriptions in your writing? And what does your editor say when you send it off? Do they ask you to cut it or add some more? <laughs> I always have to add more because I'm really bad at it. <laughs> That's my reverse engineer part. <laughs> I, I thought, uh, you know, once upon a time I, I didn't add enough and then I got some feedback that was like, hey, you're you're using like 25% too many words to say any given one thing. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> go, you know, go cut 50,000 words from my, my manuscript. So uh, I think it depends. I think I think my personal uh, uh, trend is I tend to, to describe things too much when they're when when I'm in like a, a transition scene or a more relaxed scene, right? And, and I get very into sensory detail. That's where, uh, you know, food scenes come in. That's where 
people's appearance might might uh, uh, get a reminder hit. But then when it's an action or 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 emotionally charged uh, scene like like Ryan was talking about, I might say something about. There's unshed tears, but I'm probably not going to spend the words to say in their green eyes, right? Something like that. Anybody else? I'm, I'm the not enough. Always, always needing to put in. Once in a while, I've had to scale back afterwards. My editor has had to say, wait a minute, there's too much here. But that's always adding after the fact. I, I am very, like, first passes could be talking heads that move around an empty space for all what I'm focused on, yeah. <laughs> like and I were on the same wavelength here. <laughs> I'm always really impressed. Um, like I was talking with uh, Marshall Ryan Maresca. He said that before he starts a story, he makes literal binders of like his map, his magic system, his political system, things like that. And I'm like, oh my God, how do you even do that? So I'm always impressed when people can do that. <laughs> um. Now I know uh, I know Mike touched on earlier about food, but uh, or taste, I guess. But uh, is there a sense that you just stay away from, or is there one that your editor is like, you got to put this in there? You you can't just not have somebody that can't, you know, I guess smell something. Because <laughs> I mean, there there are definitely things that some people can't do, but you know, I, I would think smell, except for those now, I guess with COVID that can't smell or taste, but you know, is there, is there a sense that, uh, that you just try to stay away from as much as possible or just kind of pepper it in where you can? I think Marina mentioned it earlier, but like tactile stuff is, uh, is something that I don't spend a lot of time on and it's not purposeful, but it's just, I feel like there's not a lot of opportunity. Maybe if like, you know, they're grabbing something like I can, I can mention if it's like, you know, the, the smooth handle of a pistol, but, um, but otherwise it's, it's just not something that I, I focus on too much. Uh, and that's probably the big one for me, but it's not purposeful. It just doesn't really come up. Anybody else? I think again, it's one of those things where it's like, they're all tools. So why would I avoid a tool? <laughs> right. <laughs> Just because you hate it so much, you just have to. Right. <laughs> um, so, another friend of the of the YouTube, Mr. Christian Cameron, asked, uh, "Do you worry about anachronism and description?" Sure. Earlier, with the pine trees. Yeah. <laughs> and saying, you know, something is about the size of a cigarette packet, and my editor's like, "It's the twenty sixth century. Who still smokes?" Um, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, say it's a, you know a boulder the size of a Volkswagen, and that's it. You know, huh. it's so uh, so you have to come up with yeah. contextual descriptions. Yeah, I had a really hard yeah. time. With Adam's apple I was trying to describe somebody's throat bobbing, and it was like uh, there's really like the actual technical term for it. I don't remember what it was, but it was something terrible, medical sounding. I was like, you can't. <laughs> replace it with that there's some things that you're just like how do i work around this because it's not going to sound right in the secondary world where there's no atom right? so. i would say i don't worry about it but my editor definitely does <laughs> <laughs> which is not a great answer <laughs> but it works <laughs> but it works <laughs> I mean, I, I worry about a lot, right? Like I'm, I'm just a worrier in general, but I've got, you know, explosive devices in, in my books and I'm like, well, shit, like I, I'm researching the etymology of, of words all the time. Cause I'm like, well, would that even make sense in this world? Like if they don't have gunpowder, but they have this other technology that I've, you know, uh, uh, built out a backstory around that, that does effectively the same thing. Can I even call it a bomb? Will that make sense? So yeah, I, I run into stuff all the time. Is it kind of an explosive device? <laughs> yeah, and it sounds really lame, and I'm going to get called out on it, but that's okay. <laughs> the thing that goes boom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think it, it's a balancing act, though, because you can't change everything, and you have to still make it comprehensible for the for the audience. So you'll, um, you know, if you're translating some things, then you there's no reason. There's Doctor Who, the Daleks. They, when they say uh, the bomb will be ready in twenty rels, and it's like, why not just say seconds? You've translated everything else. <laughs> but it's, yeah. so um, it, it's a balancing act because it, it can start to sound very 
daft if you're trying to describe everyday things um, in, in a very weird way because you know you describe a dishwasher as a, a magic mushy cupboard or something. <laughs> So I, th I, th I think you have to you have to balance between the catering to the authenticity and catering to the audience. Yeah, and sometimes you think something matters and it doesn't as much. So my fantasy book that's coming out has a serial killer in it, but the term serial killer wasn't invented until you know this last century. So I was like, I can't call it a serial killer. I gotta call him something else, right? So the whole time I'm like frantically avoiding the term serial killer, and then I was playing The Witcher Three, which is supposed to be in like an ultimate universe. 12th century thing, and then like Geralt's hunting a serial killer, and I was like, God damn it. <laughs> 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 no, no one would have cared probably if I had called it. But anyway, so you know, so sometimes we overthink it too. So you just kind of have to pick and choose. Again, it's another one of those pick and choose your battles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think you can backdoor it into like, so one thing that, like, I, I don't, my stuff is like very modern, so I don't deal with it, but I notice it. So I, one thing that always bugged me was in The Empire Strikes Back. Han Solo says, I'll see you in hell. And I'm like, how, what does that mean? You know, but then if you look at Wikipedia, it's like, they've actually established that like, you know, on like in a Corellian religion, hell is the place where bad people go. And so it's like, you can like, you, you, like my friend in high school, when I brought this up, you know, years ago, he said like, well, this is being translated from a galaxy far, far away to our world. So hell is just the stand in for, you know, whatever they had. You can look at it from that perspective or you can actually just backdoor an explanation in later. Yeah. No, you can just backdoor it in with, with time travel. <laughs> <laughs> right at right at the end of the story, they come back into the, you know, and they're like, oh, what's a serial killer? It's just a person that runs around stabbing people. Um, so, uh, so Paul asks, uh, what tips or advice do you have when applying sensory descriptions to place? Any key things that must be included to really convey the sense of a place to a reader? That's where I go back to like, the emotional. What is the whatever is sparking an emotion in the character to feel about a place? Like I said, so you can go into an old barn and you can be like, this old barn stinks like horses and I hated it here. Or you can be like, this old barn is freaking creepy. And there's some ghosts in here. Or there's this old barn and it's beautiful and I'm gonna fix it up and I'm gonna make it a, you know, what is the character feeling about that place? The sensory details that describe that feeling are gonna be more important. And different characters might feel the different way about the exact same space. Also, also spatial relationships I find quite important in the just, you know, it, it, in the room, how big is the room, how many people are in the room, whereabouts in the room is everyone standing, you know, in, in as fewer words as possible, but just to get those details across just so you can picture the scene in your head as if you're writing like stage directions or something. We're kind of a off the cuff question. Um, are there any any writers out that uh, that you've read over the years or here recently that that maybe thought of something sensory wise that maybe you didn't and you're just like, oh come on, why why did I think of that? You know, is, is there somebody in particular that you can think of or a book uh, that you read that has that in there? I will say Alex Harrow who. Wrote Ten Thousand Doors of January. Um, like everything she writes, it's just way better than anything I could possibly write. Like on all levels, prose, details, world building, dialogue. So, yeah, she's she's like my gold standard right now. Hmm. Is that a stumpy type question? <laughs> I just keep hearing that. The answer is yes. I've definitely had those moments. I'm not trying to remember even a single book I've ever read in my life. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, I think Stephen King's uh, Dreamcatcher left a mark on me with some of the details he chose to uh, to describe when the uh, alien was, you know. Um, uh, which they, they called them shit weasels. Uh, so you'll get a picture of where the alien was emerging from that, uh, that left a mark. I don't know if I wanted to imitate it, but I remember it. <laughs> yeah, Trisha McKillop, definitely. Like I imprinted on her description really early, but I couldn't give you specifics of like, this is the thing that stuck with me. 
I just remember being like, wow, this is, you know, the, I don't know if any of you have ever seen her covers, um, but her, her cover art is, is very illustrative, very finely detailed. And it, it, that comes to life on the page when you're reading McKillop's work. Truly impressive. Anybody else? I do have, I can't, again, can't remember the specifics, but I do remember having a few of those moments when I was reading um, Victoria Schwab's Vicious. Like there were some things in there that were super evocative, but of course I can't remember specifically what they were at the time, but. It's no worries. As long as you got the author of the book, tell you're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I'm going to kind of move on to the segment. I, I want everybody to, talk a little bit about something they've got going on uh, or if they've got a book coming out. I know some of us have some stuff coming out very soon or have already uh, within this month um, or, you know, in the future, but tell us, you know, what you got going on. And then also uh, anybody that's not familiar with your work, where they can start. So Mike, we'll start with you. So I had a launch yesterday for We Could Be Heroes, which is my uh, superhero and supervillain friendship book. Um, and that's available everywhere, audiobook too. Um, and if no one's doing anything tomorrow night, I will be talking with Delilah S. Dawson about that uh, through the Astoria Bookshop, um, free registration. Um, my other books are Here and Now and Then, which is a time travel father-daughter story, and then A Beginning at the End, which is a post-pandemic book that came out before the pandemic, like right before the pandemic. So that was really hard to promote. <laughs> so, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Mike Chen writer. It's very important to not Mike Chen because Mike Chen is a YouTube food guy. Um, and we get confused quite a bit, but he has 3 million followers and I have like 5,000. So <laughs> this is why Mike doesn't like to talk about food and books. <laughs> He's traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a uh, second world action adventure fantasy trilogy that'll be out from tour uh, January 2022. Um, for right now, come heckle me on Twitter. I'm on there way too much, and I enjoy uh, interacting with anybody and everybody. So that's where you'll find me for the next year or so. Gareth, um, yeah, I've uh, my Embers of War trilogy um, is out now and um, from Titan Books, and in April, Solaris releasing a special tenth anniversary edition of my novel, The Recollection, uh, with a new introduction, a new cover, and everything. And then in August, there's Light Chaser, which is a book I wrote with Peter F. Hamilton that's coming out from Tor. Megan? Um, my fantasy trilogy, which is The Scorched Continent, starts with Steal the Sky. That's complete and out now. I'm finishing up the Protectorate trilogy, which is space opera this year. Catalyst Gate um, just turned in page proof. So it's a real book now, um, and it's coming out in July. Um, I have a new space opera trilogy of vague name and origin that I'll be able to talk about later <laughs> and a um, post-apocalyptic science fiction novella coming out from orbit um, sometime in March I think that I describe it as Mad Max Fury Road meets Blade Runner. Wow. All right Marina. So I have a uh... The Numenon series is a complete trilogy of space opera. It's got some of those weird aliens slash not alien beings I was talking about. Um, this year, I have two new books coming out. In April is The Helm of Midnight, which is the serial killer one, where I never call him a serial killer. Um, I like to describe that one as Hannibal meets Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn. Uh, and then in September, Activation Degradation is like a thriller-paced space opera with soft robots and queer pirates and found family. So I'm very excited for both of those. Fantastic. Ryan? Yeah, so uh, my Fall of the God series from Tour Books uh, is, is starting to come out now. The Sin and the Steel uh, came out last year. It's available wherever fine books are sold. Um, it was uh, picked by um, uh, Fantasy Critic and SFF World as uh, one of their top debuts for last year. So if you like 
Pirates of the Caribbean meets like a Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes with a uh, gender flipped uh, Sherlock. I, I, I highly suggest you check it out. And then the sequel comes out this summer, The Justice and Revenge, uh, and the paperback uh, comes out in June uh, for Sin and the Steel as well. Um, and you can find me at everywhere, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, my website, uh, all the same, Ryan Van Loan. Easy enough. <laughs> well, uh, I want to take an opportunity to thank everybody that tuned in, uh, and especially for all of our panelists that, uh, that took the time out of today to come chat about sensory detail and science fiction and fantasy. Um, I also want to make a note that uh, those of you watching, we've got another panel coming up in just under an hour. It's called Science Fiction and Fantasy Fight Club, uh, which should be should be quite interesting. Uh, hopefully nobody actually gets in a real fight during it, but uh, we'll find out. Um, but just again, uh, thank y'all so much for for coming and chatting. Uh, really appreciate it. Maybe we can uh, try to get this one together next year and talk a little bit, maybe a little bit, a little bit of the same stuff. Maybe a little something different. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us.